0: John chapter 17. We're going to look at verses 20 and 21. And I was trying to figure out how we would close out these one and another passages. And we've been looking at these one and another passages for the sake of instructing us and guiding us in the subject of unity. And I couldn't think of a better place to go than John chapter 17. John 17 is the Lord's Prayer. You oftentimes think of uh, Matthew 6 as titled as the Lord's Prayer. That's actually Jesus teaching the disciples to pray. This we actually get into the glimpse of the throne room of God where Jesus takes us there in his communion with the Heavenly Father. And so we're reading the words of Jesus that he prays to the Father on our behalf, which gives us a glimpse into what he does as our mediator and our advocate. And this prayer is this, is that his disciples will not fall away. That is his prayer, that they will not fall away. He asks the Father, will you keep them? I'm going away, will you keep them? So he's asking that the Father would keep us in his absence as he faces the cross. But knowing that we will face temptations and persecution, Jesus prays to the Father to keep his people and to hold them fast. John Calvin says, This prayer is a safe harbor, and whoever retreats into it is safe from all danger of shipwreck. For it is as if Christ had solemnly sworn that he will devote his care and diligence to our salvation. Think about that, what Calvin says and what Jesus prays, is that Christ is dedicated and diligent to keep your salvation. He is going to keep you from falling away. Jesus concludes this with a prayer for unity, and that's where we begin to go in in verse 20, is a prayer for unity. And you think about the early church, what they faced and the persecutions that they would face, unity was of the utmost importance. J.C. Ryle, who was uh, the Bishop of Liverpool in the 1800s, says this, quote, "...in some respects it was more easy to be one at the first beginnings of the Church and harder to be kept and sanctified as the Church grew. It would become more difficult to keep the unity." Ryle's point is this, in the early stages of the church when you had the 11 and then you get to the day of Pentecost and you have the 120 there in the upper room, the unity was fairly easy to keep with the, uh, the disciples there and the, the apostles leading the people. But what happened very soon as Pentecost came and all of these table of nations are there gathered and then the gospel goes forth like almost instantly into all the nation to, and then you have the missionary work of Paul. And because of the missionary work of Paul, there's church planted all over the known world at that time. What happens to the church is it exponentially grows very quickly within the first few years. And what happens with that growth is it brings in problems. It brings in issues of disunity and factions and divisions and heresy. And all of those things are popping into the church, not to mention a suppressive government that hates Christians. So what is our safe harbor, as Calvin calls it? Well, it's this. Look at verse 20. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe. That is Jesus praying for you. He was praying before you were even a thought. 2,000 years ago, Jesus was praying for you. And look what his prayer is. He says that, you may, that they may all be one. So what was Jesus 2,000 years ago praying for? For you, for me, for this church here, and for every church in the world? He was praying that we would be united. That was his prayer. So he's praying for all disciples. But I want you to notice something here. We start off with that. He's praying for all believers. He says, but also for those who will believe in me Through their word. So, this is a crucial point. What defines a disciple? What defines a follower of Christ according to Jesus' words? It's belief through apostolic preaching. That was what he defined it. Look what he says. Those who will believe in me through... There, who's there, the disciples, the apostles, it's through the preaching of their word. So this is a crucial thing that we set apart right now and, and, and camp out here for a second. Jesus is praying for unity, but I think he sets the foundation of what that unity is, and it is first that you believe. But specifically, it's defined by a set of doctrines that you must believe in order to be considered a disciple of Christ. Do you have to believe the right things about Jesus? Or do you just, can you just say, I, I believe in Jesus, and that's good? Well, if we, if we said yes to that, That you just believe in Jesus and that's good, then we would have to say, well, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, and other groups that would acknowledge Jesus, then are saved as well. No, it's believing actually the right things about Jesus and Jesus' works. And that is what we see in the apostolic authority. So their word was written down for us, and that word is called the what? It's the Bible. And so there's this apostolic authority that comes in defining what a Christian is. In Jude chapter 3 it says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. That's not contending for believing the faith, is a set of doctrines. It's a set of doctrines that one must believe. He says, "...to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints." And I would make the argument that that indicates to us that the apostolic foundation of the Bible is the conclusion of God's revelation. So why do I not think that God is still speaking today outside of the Bible? Is because it's the faith that was once for all delivered and it's concluded with the passing of the apostles. And they write this down in a book, they give it to us. So what defines a Christian is one who is trusted in Christ, right? It's the it's the Christ of the Bible that is given to us from the testimony of the disciples. So we're not reading just anyone's testimony, we're reading the eyewitnesses' accounts of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, who we get, from whom we get the most of the New Testament books from, was an eyewitness to Christ in the resurrection. And he is the, the foremost in giving us the theology of Christ. And so we need to believe the right things, the testimony of the disciples. If we believe the testimony of the disciples concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus says it's for those who believe through their word. So their word matters to us. The Bible matters in formulating what we believe. And so because this is the basis of unity, which is the right beliefs the right doctrine about Jesus. We start there at the foundation. How do we have unity? Well, we have unity in Christ and we believe the right things about who Christ is and what his work is that he accomplished. So how do we do this? What should be our goal? Well, Jesus says this. He gives us our mission. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. By the way, which comes first, discipleship or baptism? Discipleship comes first. Make disciples, Hmm. baptize those that have become disciples. The command is directly related to the disciples. Make disciples, those who profess Christ, you baptize them. Then what's the next command? teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Who's the them? It's those that have been made disciples and been baptized in the name of the triune God are the ones you are to teach. So Jesus tells us in our evangelistic endeavor, part of that in sharing that apostolic message, the gospel message of the Lord Jesus Christ, what comes with teaching, and discipleship that follows that gospel message. We also see the focus of the early church was this. They devoted themselves to the, you're thinking they devoted themselves to Jesus's teaching. That's not what it says. Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Jesus never wrote a book. Jesus didn't, We don't have any words that Jesus wrote down himself. Those that walked with him wrote it down. But all their words were inspired by the Holy Spirit, right? All of their words are the same words as Jesus. My point is Jesus never took a pen and wrote it down and put it in a book for us. But he communicates to us through his apostles. In fact, in John, that's a great question. John chapter fourteen, Jesus says, "I will send you the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will teach you to remember all that I have said." In John chapter sixteen, he goes on to say, "He will teach you all that I have said." And so, what did they do with that Holy with the Holy Spirit inspiring them? They wrote it down. So when I read the words of Paul, I'm really, I'm really reading the words of Jesus. But the the whole point is, Jesus never wrote it down. The apostles did. And so we say that the Bible tells us they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So what what does Jesus say? Here's your command. You go proclaim the gospel, and then you teach people all that Jesus commanded. We get to the the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2, and what do you see that they're doing? They're devoted to the apostolic message. The church is dedicated to these things. I think of the idea of of preaching is so clear, where Paul tells Timothy, preach the word. And so the obvious thing that the church does is preaching and teaching. But there's also discipleship. The Lord, or excuse me, Paul tells Titus this, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to too much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Excuse me. So there's discipleship that takes place with older women to younger women. You could say mature women. So why? So the word of God may not be reviled. What is the standard for things like this? Sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled. Where do we get a standard for understanding what that means? From the Word of God. And that's to be taught in discipleship. But then it's not only that. There's also supposed to be men. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. So there's discipleship that takes place. You have a big picture of preaching that takes place. Preach the word. And then you see that there's teachers in the church that are to be teaching the word. But then also in discipleship and interpersonal relationships, there's supposed to be women teaching women how to be obedient that they may not revile God's word. How do you know not to revile God's word? you got to know God's word. And so there's this idea and this focus of teaching. So, what you see given to us as a church is frequent dedication to group Bible study and discipleship. I would say that what we're doing right now is a large group Bible study. What we do on Sunday morning, we're studying the Bible, preaching's different than teaching, but nonetheless, what we're doing is we're still. Interacting with the Word of God. And in, in Sunday school class, we're doing a large group Bible study. We're doing discipleship when we are mentoring people. Let me ask you to think through this, and I have a list here, but what threatens this program that God gives us? You know, you preach the Word, you teach the Word, you discipleship with the Word. What are some things that threaten this, do you think? Disunity. Disunity. Yeah. Society. Gossip. Gossip. False teaching. False teaching. Yeah, because what, what disrupts the idea that we are to be a seminary? That's what we're called to be. You're all in seminary. We're all in seminary together. I'm with you in it. Christ is our our teacher. I'm going to give you one thought that might be surprising to you. But I've seen it over and over again, and and other pastors that I would trust would, would say the same thing. One of the threats sometimes that comes to corporate learning, that's how we see it presented in the New Testament, is actually individualistic Bible study. Now, don't hear me saying you shouldn't be reading your Bible on your own. You should be reading your Bible every, every day. You should open the Word of God on your own, pray through the Word. You should be preaching or um, reading through the Word. You should do that every day. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is a separation from the church that says, I can do this on my own and learn this word apart from anyone else. Sure, I'll go on Sunday, I'll I'll do that part, but I'm going to separate myself from a community of believers. That is disastrous. Because what ends up happening is people get their own ideas and start to do it apart from a body And what ends up happening is you actually see the birth of either heresy or wrong views of God. And eventually, people move away from the church because they become self-sufficient. Think about what Peter says. In 2 Peter 3, he says this. He's speaking of Paul. And I think we can all relate to what Peter says here as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. You ever read the Bible and say, man, Paul's hard to understand at times. I'm not following his argument. That's why we have community. That we come together and we work through the Bible together because I think if we're honest... We have to recognize Peter walked with Jesus and was taught by the greatest teacher that's ever walked the face of the earth. He walked with Jesus. But then he knew Paul. He knew the other guys. Peter was really smart and sharp. I know we, we look at the parts where, of Peter where we, we see that he just did things impetuously and stuff like that, but Peter was a, was a gifted, intelligent theologian and was taught by Christ himself. Maybe for him, only Paul's writings were hard. But for me, I don't know a letter or a book in the Bible that I don't struggle with at some point. And so when Peter says, hey, there's some things that Paul writes are hard to understand, I want to say, there's hard parts in every book that are hard to understand. And that's why we come together, because no one can take ownership over it. We reject the idea of a pope that can tell you this is what it means, and I'm an infallible interpreter as the vicar of Christ, we don't believe that. So we believe it takes a community to come together. We believe that this is the direction that we're given. And there is an order to learning. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, tells us that God gives the church teachers for the purpose to equip the saints. Elders, they have one qualification of what they do. What is it? Able to teach. So why are elders supposed to teach? Because we all need teaching. We all need to be learned, right? Including elders. And church boundaries that identify the church and identify the doctrinal set of beliefs of the church need to be clear. And that's what the, the, the pastors are supposed to do. That's what the elders are supposed to do. This is what we stand on. So, for instance, you came into this, into, walked into this church. What does it say on our sign outside? We are a what? We are a Baptist church. That comes with certain doctrinal beliefs that we say we believe. We believe in believer's baptism as Jesus did. And so we believe that, we state that, that's part of our doctrinal statements that we put out there and we say, this is what we believe. So we come back and we should revisit that. Why do we believe that? So we have a confession of faith that helps guide us. A pastor recently said to me, he said, the Bible is enough. And that's all we need to focus on. And I, I said, I agree with you that the Bible is enough. I said, but when someone comes to you and asks you what you believe, you don't just throw a Bible at them and say, read this. No one does that. You explain it. You tell them what you believe. That idea that, well, the, just, all we need is just the Bible. No, actually, we say, we, we teach what the Bible says, and we write that down so it can be examined. And so, for instance, in our church, we hold to the Baptist faith and message that, that gives us a, a big picture of what it is that we believe. Baptists before us, held to, in the United States, would have held to the, uh, the New Hampshire Confession of Faith or the 1689 Confession of Faith. When all the delegates of the Southern Baptist Convention came together in 1845, they all subscribed to one of those two, and they were very similar, except for on the doctrine of laying on of hands. And they had a clear statement, this is what we believe. But what happens is that this order to learning that Christ has given to us and given us teachers in the church, if we pull from that and say, I'm a lone wolf now, I'm a lone ranger, it's actually devastating. Another reason that threatens this is sometimes there's unqualified teachers. Sometimes you will have poor study guides or no study guides at all that will come up They really don't tell you what the word means but tells you, well, tell me what you think it means rather than what does God's word mean. And oftentimes teachers have little to no confessional knowledge. Lack of confessional prescription is why denominations split. Does everyone know the story of the Presbyterian Church, USA? They were the big Presbyterian denomination. J. Gresham Machen saw that they were going liberal, and he said, you guys are going liberal. They split. They became the OPC. Why did they split? Because people were departing from their agreed doctrines of faith that they said we believe. At the Southern Baptist Convention this last year, where our statement of faith very clearly tells us what a pastor is. A pastor is the office of a man, held by the office of a a man. Well, then, on the floor, they said, well, hold on, what's a pastor mean? Why is the convention splitting and people departing? Because we no longer agree upon the set of doctrines that we say, this is a summary of what we believe the Bible is saying. So sometimes you will have individualistic Bible study that pulls a person from a church. You may have unqualified qualified teachers. And then there's also the issue of celebrity pastors. Social media. That's always a threat to doctrinal unity. I I follow John MacArthur and another person says I follow Charles Stanley. Well, then I follow whoever. What about what about the pastor that the Lord has placed in your midst, that you have called to teach you. Because John MacArthur, and that's not a bag on John MacArthur. I love John MacArthur. I'm just using him as an example. He didn't know anything about you. He didn't know anything about your concerns. He didn't know anything about what's going on in your week. He doesn't know about anything about the needs in this local church. But the way God has designed it is there's to be elders there that are overseeing that. Now, there are other practical considerations that divide us. Practical considerations sometimes divide us and threaten this unity. Practical considerations, though, must have a theological foundation. What I mean by practical uh, considerations is, how do we do this, or how do we do that? as a church when we come together. How do we do certain things? How we do certain things must be grounded in the Scriptures. Even where Scripture doesn't exactly tell us how we should maybe do a Bible study, for instance. It tells us how we are to gather and worship. But how we might do, say, a a Bible study like this or how to lead a prayer meeting, we're just told that they gathered to pray and devoted themselves to the scriptures. So we're not told how that took place. I'm pretty sure Peter didn't have a microphone. I'm also sure he didn't have an air conditioner. You know, but, So we're not told exactly how we're supposed to do those, those things. But we have principles. And our principles that we have from Scripture must be the foundation and the basis of how we do practical things. Like gathering on a Wednesday. It's wonderful that we have a meal together, isn't it? Isn't it great that we get to come together, we get to eat dinner, we get to share life with one another, and then we get to feast upon God's Word with one another, and then afterwards, no one just goes home. We sit and talk for a while afterwards. We're still fellowshipping. That's a wonderful thing. That is by God's grace. And so we have to have a practical application that is rooted on the teaching of the apostles. Now... You see, the prayer for Christ is that it's for disciples. We see what defines the disciples. It's the apostolic teaching. We see what is a threat to the apostolic teaching. Now, what was specifically Jesus' prayer for? You'll notice in the next verse it says that they will be one. He prays for unity. That they may all, that is the church, may be one. And it's stated as a continual ongoing oneness. That we would always be one. And that unity of oneness is defined in the most incomprehensible ways. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Our unity that Christ prays for, he uses a comparison by contrast here. The unity that the Son has with the Father is to be the unity that we are to imitate. He uses the just as word. Just as we have unity, they are to have unity. So let let me just think through this with you. What does that look like? Well, what do we see in the opening chapters of John 1.1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. You see, the Word was God. Complete unity. But distinction. The Word was with God. So you have eternal unity and eternal distinction. Their being is united. What do we know that it tells us in the very... Early parts of the Bible, the Lord our God is one, but yet three. One being, three persons. They're distinct in their persons. And so, in our identification, we're to be so united that we are one, but yet you're still distinct. Now, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father, yet they are one. In being, they're one in will, one in purpose. Look at the unity of work between the Father and the Son. In John chapter 5, in verse 17, it says this My Father is working until now, and I am working. And then verse 19, Jesus goes on to tell, tell us what this means. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. You think of the unity. The Father's not off doing His own plan, and Jesus says, I'm going to go over here and do my plan. No, they're united. They're one. Their work is inseparable. They're united in the work that they do together. So there's a unity of purpose, a unity of work, and a unity of will that they have. And so if you think about it, this unity of work, we are then to be all working for the same purpose. Okay, so what is our purpose? Remember, that was the big thing that churches had to do, like, 30 years ago, you have to name your purpose and you have to give your mission statement. Jesus has given us a mission statement and I don't like messing with those words that Jesus has given us. Jesus says, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That is our mission, is the proclamation of the gospel to all nations. It is that proclamation of the apostolic faith that they may believe through the apostles' teaching. So what is our mission? It's to see churches planted. It's to see Bibles translated until the ends of the earth are reached. That's our mission. We don't get to rewrite that. Christ has written it. He's commanded it and said, This is what you're to do. So, our work that we're to be united in is a missionary work, local beyond proclamation of the gospel. We believe through their word, which necessitates what the message is and also necessitates that if there is going to be people that believe and come to know this Christ, We have to actually preach that word. Happy are the feet that bring good news, as Romans 10 says. How will they believe if they have not heard? And how will they hear if they have not been what? Sent. There's another thing that characterizes the unity of the Father and the Son. By the way, God is infinite. And so there would be an infinite list of things that are beyond Our ability to even understand. Because that's how great God is. That's how marvelous God is. But I would say another thing that Scripture we can see and derive from Scripture is that there's no sin in their relationship. Now, you think about our relationships, if you remove sin, how how great would they be? There's no sin. We see that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all, which is a, a moral statement. There's no sin. God does not have a sinful nature. God doesn't have sinful thoughts. God doesn't have sinful inclinations. God is pure holiness. There is no darkness in Him, there is only light. But what do we know about us? We sin. And because we sin, we then have what? Relational issues. And relational issues are what impact unity. What is the cause of relational issues? You only got one answer that's right. What is the cause of relational issues? It's sin. It's sin. Period. It's always sin. And so we must... Recognize our utter dependency upon God's grace through the working of the Spirit in this. Because we are fleshly, we are sinful. Even in justification where we have the imputed righteousness of Christ, we still sin. John says, if anyone says he doesn't sin, he is a liar. We still struggle with sin. But Paul tells the church of Galatians, but if you are led by the Spirit... If you are led by the Spirit, the idea is that I am completely dependent upon grace, and yet I'm called to strive for obedience. This is how it works. You are to strive for obedience, but you can't do it on your own. In fact, you can't do it at all. You can't. It's by God's grace if you're obedient. Period. It is completely dependent upon Christ. We are dependent upon God's grace, yet we are called to strive for obedience. That's not two mutually exclusive things. No more than my salvation is by grace alone, yet I'm still called to what? Believe. Everyone's called to believe, but we know that they can only believe by grace alone. It is by grace you have been saved. So, what do we see here is this is that we are called to behave, to be obedient to God's word, but we can't do it apart from God's grace. And because we recognize we're sinful, and God is not sinful, and that is the example of our unity that we've been given to imitate, it tells us this that we must continually be dependent upon the Spirit's work in our life. The 1689 Confession of Faith says this, we are further sanctified, that means grow in Christlikeness, really and personally through the same virtue, that is union with Christ, by His Word and Spirit dwelling in them. So go back to the basis of our unity was the apostolic word, So, how is it that we grow in faith? It is dependence upon the Spirit and the Word. We grow through that. So, true unity is sinlessness. We cannot achieve that in this world, and we especially cannot achieve that by our own merits. It is dependency upon Christ and His grace. So as a church, if we want to be a united church, we focus in on the apostolic teaching and we look to Christ, recognizing our dependence upon him. And while the unity of the triune God cannot be literally reached, we are nonetheless called to imitate it. Jesus tells us that we actually have union with the triune God. We see that in this prayer where he says that they also may be in us. So how do we grow? The triune God dwells in the believer. Is that beyond what we can comprehend? Yeah, but Jesus also goes on to say, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him. And we, that is the Father and the Son, will come to him and make our home with him. But what did we already see in verse 16? And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. The triune God dwells with the believer by the Spirit. We are called to imitate that unity that the Father and the Son has, but yet we see that the Father the Son by the Spirit, dwell with the believer. J.C. Ryle says this, Hence, too, we infer that we are one with the Son of God, not because He conveys His substance to us, but because by the power of His Spirit He imparts to us His life and all the blessings which He has received from the Father. Now, what's the purpose of this unity? Well, in this text here, we could draw out many it's evangelistic. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. You notice that phrase, so that, that's a purpose statement. Uh, John loves the purpose statement. I wrote a paper on the word that in the, in the gospel of John years ago because he loves the, that statement so much. It's a purpose statement. He tells us what the purpose of it is evangelism. God uses means the proclamation of the gospel backed by our unity. That's what he's saying. And the nature of this unity is witnessed in the church. It's so spectacular that it confirms or gives witness to the message that is proclaimed. D.A. Carson says, quote, So this display of unity is so compelling, so unworldly, that their witness as to who Jesus is becomes explainable only if Jesus truly is the revealer whom the Father has sent. In other words, our unity in the church is to look so radically different from anything else that people go, that message actually must be true, I should look into that. So it confirms it. J.C. Ryle says this, when the world sees my people... He's speaking as if he's writing from Christ's perspective. When the world sees my people not quarreling, not divided, but one in judgment, heart and life, then the world will begin to believe that the Savior who has such a people must really be a Savior sent from God. What an amazing statement. So go back to the beginning of this. Jesus prays for you 2,000 years ago. And the basis of this prayer is that we right now in Linden, right here, would be united. That was Jesus' prayer for you. And He shows us. He gives us the means. He has given us guidance. And we have spent the last several months looking at that guidance in those one another passages. So let us study them. Let us commit them to memory and practice. But remember one essential truth about those one and another passages, we can't keep them. We cannot keep that law. Christ did. Christ kept it for us and secured it for us. And by doing so, he secured our unity and guaranteed our unity by his blood. So if we want better unity, look to Christ. He prays for our unity as a mediator. He gives grace that we may have it. And he provides an example to imitate and guidance for us to practice that unity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great mercy that you have given us in the Lord Jesus Christ. That our unity is not something that we make, but it's something that Christ achieved. It's something that Christ bought with his blood. But yet your word tells us that we are to strive for unity. Give us desires for this, that we would strive for it, that we would count it precious as, as you count it precious. As we depart from here, we pray that, Father, you would begin to prepare our hearts for when we gather on the Lord's Day as we celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and we stand unity in un- unity with one another in our common fellowship with Jesus.